able to have um, Mrs. Eliza Bilal with us today. I have been trying to do this for a long time. She lives in Denver, okay? So this is not uh, just like a drive from uh, Long Island. This is a, a, lo a long trek, not just for us, but we're tagging along. Um, so she, her official title is the Nerla Ella National, no, National Director of Director of Nerla Ella's North American Women's Division. No? Yeah. Okay, great. Which basically means <laughs> that um, she is the Rebbitzin of many of the Rebbitzins on on the campuses that you came from and the programs that you that you've gone through prior to prior to Seoul. And I'm certainly um, privileged to say that she's one of my teacher, um, somebody who I call with any questions that I have, practical or philosophical, um, and she's an amazing resource. So. Um, Without further ado, Mrs. Bulao. Okay. Eliza. You can call me Eliza. <laughs> um, should I sit or stand? I think it's symbolic, but everyone's not I guess I should stand because I don't know. Okay, so the title of tonight is Becoming Who You Want to Be. Right? So let me just hear, like, does anybody have questions or thoughts about like where are they headed? Like in terms of where thinking about the background that you're from and where you'd like to go. And you don't have to give personal information, but just tell me like a little bit of your thought about what do you feel about what your background is saying about your direction? Does your background impact on your future? Yeah. What do you mean by background? Like well, your family, your kind of, look, think about, think about where you were born, right? Wherever that was. And imagine you're born at exactly the same time in Afghanistan. How would your life be different today, right, if you came from that culture? But you don't, you come from this culture. Think about exactly where you were born, and think about how would your life be different if you were born 100 years earlier in that exact same space? What if you were born 300 years earlier in that exact same space? How would your life be different? How does where you're coming from impact on where you're headed? graduate and she's 29 and she's the mother of a few and that's a, a long interesting story her story is very fascinating but um, but now I definitely see you know having matured more that our background makes a huge difference in terms of affecting and facilitating and hindering right all kinds of effects that it has on us where are we headed where are we going I, I live in a that the Denver Jewish community is about 140 years old, approximately, and I live in the oldest neighborhood in Denver, which 
is mostly a Gentile now. It's a very small Jewish community. The Denver Jewish community is 80,000 Jews in the entire city. Most of them are um, assimilated. We have an over 80% intermarriage rate. I live on the small Haredi side of town. We have um, where the Jews moved to. So I live on the west side. The east side is where as people moved up and out, they went to the east side. The day schools on the east side, founded by west siders 50-something years ago, because the west siders knew that they would commute to send their kids to day school, and the east siders wouldn't. So they put the one school there so that it would attract the less committed, and the more committed would do the driving. Um, but on our side of town, which is mostly Hispanic, we have very few black people in Denver altogether. It's just not, a, it's, but the, the working class is, is Hispanic. Um, and so we live in a very Hispanic neighborhood, and they just built a library on our side of town. Libraries are for empowering public education, public libraries to spread education, empowerment through education, a very Jewish concept, right? If we understand that actually we do have a plan to take over the world. <laughs> I am being recorded, and it's true. <laughs> our plan is to take over the world through education, through empowering every individual to recognize and work with their inherent human dignity, their tzalm elokim. Jew and Gentile, that every single person should be empowered to engage in their own search for who they are in synergy with the rest of the world community, that we will come to a place where on that day, Hashem's name will be one, we'll get it, we'll see it, because all of us will come into a community of synergy and recognition. Right, so how do we do that? So this library that's open in this neighborhood to help facilitate that on some little level, what happens? You walk in the door, and what do you see? What should you see in a library like that? What would you imagine? Display of books. Yes! Excellent! <laughs> Excellent! And what's there, actually? Videos. The whole first floor is videos. So when my son-in-law, who brought my granddaughter on his lap, he's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, and his daughter knows how to climb into his lap and sit there, and they go on little excursions together. They went to the library, and he rolls into the library, sees, and she is two and a half, and her first sentence was, read the book, read the book. She knows books, and she knows how to sit in your lap. She knows the position, right? She sits in your lap to read a book. In Milwaukee, they have a whole program where they teach low-income mothers with a doll. How do you hold a child to put a book in front of them and read them a book? This is an educational effort. Right? Did you know that you have to educate somebody how to do that? That's like part of our background is that, no, you never thought of that. Of course you read books and tons of them, right? And to little children, before they can read, before they can look at the pictures, you're telling them. And you ask them questions. Why is there a dog there? And is it a sunny day? And why is Madeline sad? And are you the littlest one in the family? Like all those things, right? You ask those questions. That's part of absorbing the book. So when he mentioned, like, you have a lot of videos on the main floor. They said, well, they circulate really well. I'm thinking, yes, they do. But I, not that we have a ton of money, but I, as a wealthy person, you know, compared to the neighborhood, I know that I can go to Barnes & Noble, where they have a children's section the size of upstairs, a little bigger, right? Stunning. It's that display of books. You walk in, it's a candy shop, right? All the books are facing the front, and they have good help. And if I walk in and I'll say, I am traveling. I visit many women, and they have children, and I want books for 12-year-olds, for 8-year-olds, for 4-year-olds. Show me the books that are good books that will enhance them, bring them into a new world that doesn't have anything that's got idol worship or Christian in it, right? That's what I want. I'll bring you, I have books for you, so <laughs> for your kids. So, and they point me in the direction of that. I get the good help, right? But I know that exists, and they don't. So the background makes a huge difference. 
how are we empowered to seek something? Right? And this is part of what's so special about being Jewish. Being Jewish, our very first mitzvah as Jews is to learn, to read. The first actual mitzvah that we got as a Jewish people. Hmm? What? The first mitzvah that we got as a people is Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh, that's right. This month shall be to you the first of months. It's not actually make this Rosh Chodesh, but it is. It was this month. This should, this Nisan should be the first month. And so for that reason, I personally, when I learned this, um, I don't write numbers on my checks or for dates unless I have to write them in a little box. I always write the name of the month. January. January is not the first month. Nisan is the first month. So because that pasuk tells us this month shall be to you the first, I make sure Nisan is first and January is January. It's not the first, right? So I try to not write the numbers if I don't have to for the secular months. But it's not just that that month shall be the first month of all the months, but really what Hashem is saying is you just came out of Egypt, right? Where are you heading next? Not Disneyland, right? So you just came out of Egypt and, um, and now you have to see where do you want to go? Right? Where have you been and where will you go? You've been slaves. Where should you go? Just to misery, because that's what you know. That's what your background says. You're born into a caste system. You were tortured and oppressed. Where should you go? Into not really figuring yourselves out. That's where you should go if your background dictates your future. But it doesn't. Hashem said, look up in the sky. See that little new moon that you can't even tell is new yet? This newness shall be to you the first of all newnesses. You are not trapped by where you were born or how you were born. You get to pick who you want to be and how you want to be. We are creatures with free will. Hashem gave us free will and empowered us with that. If you are mothers, I'll tell you anyway, but as mothers, keep this in mind for when you have teens that the greatest gift God gave to mankind is free will, says the Boston already. And unfortunately, he gave it to our teens as well. <laughs> and so, turns out everybody gets to pick. And that is part of what makes us human, is that being human beings, being part of the animal kingdom in a way, we have instinct that tells us where to go. But as humans, we can transcend instinct. And that is what makes us particularly human and not just animal in nature, is that we get to examine our instinct, be with it, and say, do I want to follow it or not? Do I want to transcend this? Instinct says, go with what tastes good, go with what feels good, go with what you want, take what you want. And transcending that says, actually, that doesn't belong to me, or actually, that's not kosher, or actually, that's not good for me, or actually, I'm going to choose to put off this short-term pleasure for, to achieve the long-term goal. Right? I have something bigger in mind than that. Right? So you're able to accomplish that. Rather than just fill your wardrobe with the extra money that you're making right now, put it aside and you can buy something pretty and put some money in the bank so you have a down payment for a house. Right? We understand, yeah, I want that stability. I want to have a home and I want to pay tuitions and I want to, right? So in order to do that, you have to build yourself. You have to get the education and get the job and get the experience and get the, create the partnerships and create the connections and all the things that you need to accomplish in order to achieve your goals. So that is human. The ability to transcend instinct to accomplish something different, whether 
you know, we get to pick which direction we transcend. That's the first mitzvah of the Jewish people, is choose who you want to be. You can make yourself new and make yourself new again and again and again, and you're never trapped. No matter where you come from, no matter who you were born to, no matter where you started, you get to pick what your future is. You're not trapped. Does it affect you? For sure it does. And I think that just, as they say, checking our white privilege, checking my white privilege at this point, just to say that for sure I'm impacted by impairment. You know, I, my parents felt the same way as my in-laws felt when I was born. Welcome home, future college graduate, right? There's definitely an expectation, not will you go to college, which college will you go to? Not will you be successful, how will you be successful, right? What do you want to accomplish? I was born in the 60s, raised in the 70s, where it was all about female empowerment. You know, my favorite TV show was I Dream of Jeannie, which my mother hated because that's all about male domineering over female subservience. And she couldn't stand the fact that I watched that, right? And Barbies, forget about it. Women don't look like that, right? And we weren't allowed to have them. So, and not because uh, I, was, I was born not Jewish. So that was being raised in a Protestant family at a time when there was a very careful Judeo-Christian ethic manifesting in Protestantism of inherent human dignity and of how will I get you there? Definitely education, definitely compassion, definitely not looking at women as objects. You're not playing with a Barbie, that's not us. It wasn't about modesty, it was about that's not what women look like and that's not how we play, right? Play teacher, play whatever it is, social coordinator. Cars. <laughs> Pardon? Play cards. Play, yeah, play cards, right? It's so interesting because one of the records, records, this was before tapes that I listened to as a child, was Free to Be You and Me. Did anybody ever hear that? So on that, it's, it has a whole, one of the, of the many stories which I flogged and listened to again and again is about um, William Hassadal, right? William Hassadal, and it's a whole thing about how he's teased, that he has a doll, he wants a doll, and he wants, and his, nobody understands, and his parents won't let him have a doll. They say, why don't you have a baseball bat? Why don't you have a glove? Why don't you like, what do you need a doll for? I mean, his grandmother gets it, and she buys him a doll, and she explains to the parents that William wants a doll, so when he has a baby someday, he'll know how to burp it and bring up a bubble and gently caress it to whatever, right, the whole song. So um, she explains it, right, that he also wants to just imitate his parents in raising this baby. So, um, so when my daughter was born and we were in the library looking at books, um, I found a book called William Stahl. I thought, oh, I bet this is what the song is based on. I'm going to read it to her. So I read it to her, and she's like, why did his parents care if he had a doll? <laughs> I'm like, right, that was last century's battle. <laughs> we don't need that book anymore. <laughs> That's done. We accomplished that, right? So, <laughs> nevertheless, as a reactionary mother, I did have Barbies in my house for a short period of time. <laughs> so my son, right away, picked up Barbie's leg and went <laughs> I did not have guns because I was definitely raised in a no-gun environment, but it turns out Barbies make great guns. <laughs> and I did learn through having a daughter and a son 16 months apart that, in fact, it is not all nurture. There's quite a bit of nature involved in male and female dispositions, and we certainly nurture it, but there's definitely nature there. Um, okay, so that being said, let's look at a little bit at some of the women that we have as examples right now, particularly this season coming up to Shavuot, 
and the story of Ruth and having passed behind us the story of Esther. And I was just thinking about like, what, where did they come from? from nowhere, right? Who was she? An orphan, alone and abandoned, raised by her uncle. Uh, abandoned, not hopefully her parents didn't abandon her, but she's an orphan, raised by her uncle, in relative obscurity, right? And then she's elevated to queen. So she comes from here and she goes to here, and from up here is where she has her influence. Let's think about Ruth, a Moabite princess, right? So she comes from here, and she marries into a good family, the family of Elimelech, story, just say, could you back up, please? Okay. You back up a little bit for, some, for the benefit of... Okay. if those princesses converted before the marriage or not. It seems like maybe they did, but maybe their conversion was contingent on the fact that they're marrying into a kingly type of a family. That's a background story. But anyway, in relatively short order, it takes a, actually a little while, but both boys die. First one, the first dad dies, Elimelech dies, which at that time was a sign, you're doing the wrong thing, get out of here. But they didn't. Then the boys die, one after the other. And then Naomi finally says, okay, I have nothing except for two daughters-in-law now. Time to go back. So she kisses her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah, by the way, is the namesake of Oprah Winfrey, whose mother was a little dyslexic. Really? So, yeah, or she's named after Orpah, except for it's Oprah. <laughs> dyslexic. Um, <laughs> I'm all dyslexic. We have two refrigerators in our kitchen, and I always mix up the left and the right regularly for my kids. Like, I just named them Sally and Bob. So <laughs> Sally is a Bob. So my son is like, Ima, how about if we give Sally and Bob last names? It could be Sally left and Bob right. And then we could be yeshivish and just call them by their last names. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, it's still confusing. Left, right? So this looks bad. Get this is like the thing. So anyway, so Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law, so she calls them to her and she says, girls, I'm leaving. Go back to your families. I have nothing to give you. Orpah says, okay, fine. She kisses her mother-in-law and she leaves. And Ruth says, absolutely not. I am staying with you. And Naomi says, I have nothing for you. I'm poverty stricken. I have no boys. Even if I would go back to Bethlehem, get married, have a kid, you'd wait till he grows up? Like that, that's not who you want to marry. There's all kinds of mystical reasons why she'd want to marry into the family again. Um, which I won't go into now, but maybe later, if you want. Um, anyway, so, but 
But Ruth says, no, wherever you, your people are my people, and you're, um, wherever you go, I'll go, and where you die, there I'll be buried. And she gives the whole long speech about how she is part. So that this is the book. And then she goes. I'll, I'll finish this story in the thing. She, then she, they go back to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, Naomi changes her name. Naomi means nice and pleasant. Naomi. She changes her name to Mara because she's bitter. She's embittered by her circumstances. And they go back and they say, could this possibly be Naomi? And she's like, not Naomi, Mara. That's she, my, she calls herself that? She says, yeah, they say, has Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. But I think that she still keeps the name, but she is, is owning the fact that her life is embittered. Right? So, and they have nothing. So the way at that time that the soup kitchen of the day was that you could go to any field and glean in that field. So we have three different laws surrounding agricultural fields and what has to be left for the pork, the corners. So if you have a square field, you have to leave the corners. I think about it when I fly into Colorado because the irrigation is in a circle. There's nothing planted in the corners. Yeah. So I just wonder, like, what? That's how the irrigation runs. It's in this big circle, and the corners. You see the square field with the corners, with nothing growing there. Um, anyway, so you have to leave the corners, and there's no amount. It could be a tiny little bit. It could be a lot of a corner that's left for poor people to take everything that's there. And then, when you're harvesting, let's just say you're harvesting grapes, and as you go along, if you forgot to harvest something, you're not allowed to go back and get it. That's called shechacha. Anything you forgot is left for poor people, they get to go get it. Let's say you're harvesting, and you didn't want to forget, and you get a bunch of it, and you drop what's in your hands. You're just, it fell out of your hands. The halacha is, the Jewish law is, that if you dropped three or more, you can pick it up. And if you drop two or less, you have to leave it. That's called leket. Right, you have to leave it on the ground. And so that, so whatever's forgotten, and whatever's left on the ground, and whatever's the corner is for poor people. And poor people can go and take their food that way. So what, So the, the agriculture, the farmer, is growing food for himself and for sale, and also for poor people in that way. So, but that has to be gathered. So, and it's not so easy to gather, and it's a little embarrassing to gather. You have to go with all the poor people and make yourself humble and go gather food. Right, so Ruth goes to gather food, and she tells her mother-in-law, you stay here, I'll gather for both of us. You know, you're my mother-in-law, let me honor you. I'll go gather. And all the girls in the back in case you never got this lesson, were taught, like, how do you gather what's on the ground? You don't bend over and show your tush. That's for sure not how you do it. You do it like this, you pick it up like that, so that you're very graceful, okay? So most of the girls are bending over, and the head of the field looks out across and sees a girl modestly stooping to pick it up. And he says, who's that girl? And they say, oh, that's Ruth, the Moabite lady. Not the convert, because she did convert. We understand from that story where she says, you go, you go, you go. And they say, that's Ruth, the Moabite. I see her modesty and how careful she is, even in these trying circumstances. To, to glean food, but she's not doing it in the most physically efficient way, she's doing it in the most modest way. I want to meet her. Brings, they meet, they chat, he finds out who she belongs to, that she is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Okay, that's made. She goes back home and he says, glean in my field. I'll make sure you don't get molested. So we see there's sexual assault in that kind of work also. And he says, I'll protect you. Stay in my fields. I'll tell my boys not to touch you. The other boys, I'll make sure that the field hands that I've employed and the males who are gleaning 
will stay away from you. I will grant you that protection, stay in my field. So she goes home and she says, I met this really nice guy, and he said, stay in my field. And Noah says, that's right. And then it turns out, and then she says, actually, he happens to be a relative. And we have this whole mystical thing. Um, I'm just trying to say if I want to go into the mystical part. Anyway, you should, he's a possible person in line for you to marry. Now he's 80, she's 40, it seems, from the story. Um, and, and she says, and there's whole reasons why they should marry. And um, so it's a very strange thing. Naomi sends her down to the granary where Boaz is sleeping that night and says, go and uncover his feet and see if he'll marry you. Oh. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, like, it's an interesting story. If it seems like a little bit of seduction. Seduction, for sure. Right? Like, what is going on here? So, so for, in order to understand that, you need to understand the mystical part just a little bit. So it seems that when somebody dies without having children, um, that could be, isn't always, but could be, Hashem whisking them out of the world before they can do more damage to their neshama. So taking away their body so that the soul will not become more damaged because the soul grows or is diminished through the behavior of the body. So if somebody's doing the wrong thing, it's possible, and we don't never, ever judge today, ever, 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 Nevertheless, in the Torah, there are certain places where we're told that's what's going on, and this is one of those places, that these two boys died because they were doing the wrong things. And we have this concept called Yibum, where the, back up for another philosophical principle, our bodies and souls are matched perfectly, that this body is the exact right container for this soul. And it had to be born in this time, in this place, with these learning abilities and disabilities, with these health concerns and strengths, right? For that soul's best ability to possibly grow to where it could be. If somebody's whisked out of the world, that soul still needs a body very similar to the one that it had. So how do you make a body that's the most similar possible for reincarnation of that soul? You take the brother or the closest relative of the deceased and the wife of the deceased. Now, the wife has received genetic material from the husband during their marital encounters. And with that genetic material that she receives, she also receives some of his spiritual energy. So she inside her has some of the, the deceased's spiritual energy. And if she matches that with the brother, that's the best way to make the physical container for the reincarnation of the deceased brother's soul. Got it? Got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Recipe. <laughs> this is the underpinnings of Yibum. Right? What say you don't, you're not interested in marrying that brother? You're married to the guy, he gets hit by the bus, you didn't have kids, and you're thinking, I just don't like his brother. <laughs> I'm really not interested. I don't want to marry him, right? But that's the halacha, right? So what do you do? So you're not, he is required to marry you unless you don't want it, right? So what do you do if you don't want it? Um, I guess he can get out of it too, but either which way to get out of it, this ceremony has to happen. It's a weird ceremony. She takes off his shoe and spits in it. <laughs> called Halitza. And he's then known as the one who removed the shoe. What's that about? <laughs> Shoes, it turns out, protect the feet. Just like, so when you go outside 
in order to protect your feet, you put on a shoe. When you send a tender neshama into the world, you can't send it in just like that. You have to send it in something that will protect it in a body. Right? So you send it in this body when you're sending it into the world. The body is likened unto the shoe. When you need to be super spiritual, you take your shoes off, like Moshe Rabbeinu took his shoes off at the burning bush, right? Like take your shoes off, the Kohanim would have to do their service with their shoes off. They take their shoes off to bench the congregation. Today, when they do Birkat Kohanim, they take their shoes off. When you're acting in a soul space, even mourners take their shoes off, um, partially to say a body has been taken from the world. So shoes and bodies, there is a parallel there. So... Um, so that's why she uncovers the feet. She goes to the granary and she uncovers the feet and she says, somebody There's a foot without a shoe that's floating around and it needs a shoe. Do you want to partner with me in making the shoe for that foot? Do you want to make a body for that neshama and give it a chance to come into the world? And he hears the message. So it's not just a seduction. It is a message. There's something that needs to happen here. And Naomi understands that. And that's why she sends Ruth to do that, right, into the granary to send that message. And the message is received. <clears throat> but then Boaz says, okay, actually there's somebody in line before me. Let's ask him. I ask him, he says, I'm not interested. Because if he says, I'll do it, Boaz says, there's somebody who needs redeeming. Will you do it? He says, yeah, sure, no problem. And he says, it's Ruth the Moabite. Is it Moabite? I don't think so. I'm not marrying a Moabite because they're not allowed to convert. And it turns out that the halacha is Moabites can't convert, but Moabitesses can. So male Moabites are not allowed to convert and become Jewish, and female Moabites are. So but it wasn't clear at the time. So, um, so, but that's the halacha. So this man says, I'm not jeopardizing my lineage by marrying a Moabitess. So Boaz says, okay, fine. I'll do it. I'm the judge of the generation. I'll take the responsibility. I'll marry her. Marries her. They um, conceive. He dies the next day. Boaz. Which makes everybody think, what? Shouldn't have married her. Right? So he's judged for that. But that's the Torah tells us that's not why he died. He died because he finished his job. He was supposed to provide this shoe. He was supposed to, with Naomi, with Ruth, to create this container for this neshama. And when the baby's born, it's called Ovad, the son of Naomi. Right? Because really it's the replacement of her son who died. So it's interesting. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the son of the... It's supposed to be the replacement, really. The replacement body. So it's called Ovad, the son of Naomi. And he's the father of Ishai, who's the father of David, king David Melch Kaivakayam, that David Hamelch Yisrael. So Ruth, the Moabite princess, who becomes the gleaner in the field. So she goes from high to low to the mother of Mashiach. Right, so that's the story of Ruth. So it's interesting to see like what is going on in the story. How does she go from so high to so low? What is she accomplishing here in this story? And it's also a fascinating story of a relationship between daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. I don't know about in your lives, <clears throat> but you're probably familiar that many times there is strife right, between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Not always, but very often, and partly that's because you share one man. Right? She starts him off 
and you want to take him and finish him off, right? Um, and she feels like you're not doing a good enough job with her project. And you're feeling like she's, she's meddling in your relationship, your man, right? So there's this like, can you partner in what you both want the best for this person and to bring out the best in him? But it's often, isn't, it's often not a partnership, it's often a relationship of strife and struggle. So I was just thinking about Ruth and what she accomplished. She was able to, as a princess, who you think could be very egotistical, humble herself to the level that she could go glean for her mother-in-law and create space inside her for the respect and care for her mother-in-law. So much space, which requires so much moving your ego aside, that she was able to totally have the room to channel the shiach into the world. You know, and that she was able to open herself up. So we know about Hashem. You know the Farish from the song. We know clearly from the Uncle Moishi song, right? Where is Hashem? That's right, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, right? So, and we call Hashem because of that hamakom. Hashem is the place, right? That's, we live inside Hashem. So, and we only, very rarely do we use hamakom um, when we're using, talking about Hashem, but we, we say it in the Haggadah and we say it in the mourner's house also, right? When we say hamakom yinachem echem, the place should come for you. But it's because we all live inside Hashem. One reason why we say it inside a mourner's house is so that we should know we're in the same place, me and my deceased beloved person. We're in the same place, we're both in Hashem. We feel like we're in different worlds. They're in that world, I'm in this world, but really we're in one place inside Hashem. So we live inside Hashem. That's a problem though, because if Hashem is truly everywhere, how are we here? What do you mean? Oh. Right, that's a good question. What do I mean? How is it possible? If Hashem is truly everywhere, up, up, down, down, right, left, and all around, right? If Hashem is everywhere, how do you exist? It's inside nature. Okay, how, any other answers? Excellent, right? That is the answer of our Kabbalists. Two things can't occupy the same space. Oh, right? Even us and Hashem can't occupy the same space. So our Kabbalists ask that question. How could it be that Hashem is everywhere and yet there's a world here? must be that Hashem made space for that world. It must be that Hashem got himself out of the way in order to create space for a world to exist, for a universe to exist. So that's referred to as the Kabbalistic concept of tzimtzum, or contraction. That Hashem contracted himself, so to speak, in order to create space for there to be a physical world. But Hashem also had to do that with Hashem's will. Right? If Hashem's will, his desire, permeates everything, it would be impossible for us to do something contrary to Hashem's will. Right? We wouldn't be able to function in a way that Hashem doesn't like. And yet we can. We can take tray food, reach our hands out, put it in our mouth, eat it, swallow it. So not only can we do that, but Hashem will digest it for us and turn it into energy and integrate it into our bodies. Right? He totally makes space for us. Or we can breathe in words of Lashon Hara. Negative comments about others can come right out. No problem. Hashem totally supports our breath for that to happen. Right? And our intelligence doesn't falter. Not his own will out of the way so that our will would have room to operate. So one of the things that we're told to do in this world is to be Hashem-like. 
what's we're supposed to do is actually make space inside ourselves. space we don't need to make. God isn't physical, so he doesn't need physical space inside of us. But he does need us to move our desire aside. Right? He does say, I know you want a bunch of stuff. You're created in my image after all. I run the world and so would you like to. Right? Do you know the difference between a Jew and God? God knows everything. And a Jew knows better. <laughs> to receive what God wants and do what God wants to move my will aside make for me a mikdash make for me a tabernacle and I will live in 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 you right not in it really grammatically it should say make for me a tabernacle and I'll live inside it but it doesn't. It says, make for me a tabernacle, and I'll live inside you. Right? Do this physical thing. By engaging in this physical thing, you will make some space inside of you for me to live. Right? I, I don't want to live in a building. I want to live in your heart. But how am I going to get space inside your heart? You have to do stuff. That's what the mitzvahs are about. Right? All the do's are, make space for me this way. And all the don'ts are, don't chase me out this way. So what means doing physical stuff? <clears throat> That's what mitzvot right. are, physical pathways to spiritual goals. All mitzvot are physical? Almost. Some are thought, but they're proactive thought mitzvahs. Yeah, but otherwise they're physical things to, they're things to do. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's how do I do, how do I use this shoe that I'm wearing to affect what's inside? How do I use this body to grow my soul? Right, so, and that's what we're here for, because we're really we're a soul before we're born, and when we die, what do we leave behind? The soul continues, and just the body stays. Right, so we're a soul before we're born, and we're a soul after we die. stuff in long-term relationships. There is with God, too. 
right? We're in a relationship with God that in the end is a way, it's not mitzvah points and avera points, it's a complicated relationship. And it's a way, either basically good or basically bad with stuff in it. So can I ask you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So bringing this back to how we're not conditioned by our we background. We are conditioned, right. We are conditioned. Well, ask your question first. So that, that's, no, I'm just curious, how, how do you leave your pesky night like Ruth did? Or mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you leave So how do you do that, right? So education empowers. A class like this helps you start to think about it and have a conversation afterwards also and learn some more stuff and read books and have more conversations. Because you want to be self-aware and start to examine, where do I come from? What are my assumptions? How are they empowering me? And how are they hindering me? At this stage in my life, what do I want to take on that my parents have gifted me with? And what do I want to discard? Who do I want to become? And how will I get there? Because really, your parents, in a way, and this is a totally rough estimate, in a way, your parents raise you from 0 to 20, give or take five years, right? And you raise yourself from 20 to 40, right, ish, 20-ish to 40-ish. 40 is really where you start being a real adult, I would say, from my vantage point so of <laughs> my vantage point of 51 at this point, right? Because there really is so much growing that you do in your 30s and 40s too. And 40s where you really like, really can take a look around and say, who am I now and how have I gotten here? But if you know at this stage, it's up to me. Like a lot of people say, oh, I can't call you Elisa. I have to... You're my mother's age, I have to call you Mrs. Dula. I'm like, really? It's a choice you can make. Sure, you were conditioned by your family to call adults Mrs. whatever, but you can choose now, as an adult yourself, what part do you want to keep and what part do you want to let go? So if I'm saying that it's not an honorific that I need, I am. I say it's okay. Now you get to know who you want to be. It's a tiny little example, but that example about fights, to be very private about your, your own emotions, or to be very open. Do you like that? Just because you're raised that way doesn't mean you have to stay that way. Right? These are choices you get to make. You get to renew yourself. And that is the secret of the Jewish people, is that we don't, we're not stuck. We don't have to be who we were yesterday. We can make ourselves new every single day, every single month, every single year. We get to choose. Who do I want to be, and how am I going to get there? But really, first you have to make the choice. I want to be that, right? And you can roll along in general, too. But if you really want to become something, you have to be proactive. That's the first and the second half. It's highly effective people. Right? Be proactive, right? Make a choice. Who do I want to be? And now, how will I get there, right? Do I want to be more learned? Do I want to be softer? I remember in third grade, um, Somebody didn't hear what I said. Instead of them saying, what, they said, pardon. And I thought, that's so nice. I like that. It's like, pardon instead of what. And I started saying it then. Right? I don't always say it, but like I just thought that was a, a softer way to say it. Like, what is more like, it's a little more crass. Like, what? Right? Instead of pardon, I, I just want to let you know. Like, little things you can pick up along the way. And we all do that. I had a roommate when I was in... Um, I spent four years in Israel, so I had um, a roommate in Israel. She was actually an Oriental um, convert at the time. 
I don't think she had converted yet. But I knocked on the bathroom door. Instead of saying, I'm in here, she knocked back. And I thought, what a great idea. <laughs> like, it's very idle. You don't have to say, like, there's somebody in here, or I'll be right now. Tell people your plans. I'll be right out. <laughs> it's not really anybody's business. You just want to let somebody know. Don't, like, try to get the door open, because I'm in here, right? So she just knocked back. I thought, that's great. Right? <laughs> that's something I learned at home, but I learned from her. So I thought, like, there's little things you get to pick. Who do you want? So do you want to be more adult? Start to look for little things that are more adult. Do you want to be more assertive? Look for that. Do you want to balance the two? Look for how to do that. Right? So you want to start to decide, who do I want to be? And how will I get there? But you have to start with, who do you want to be? And know that you're not destined to be who your family started you off as. That's a starting place. And you do have to work with how you were started. And there will be hindering things. So often I went to parenting workshop in the five towns they see from Long Beach town. So I went to a parenting workshop with Dr. Pelham and stayed at the public, right? And I have my six I go here, Dr. David Pelkowitz, and there's 150 from ladies in the white shoulder and we're listening to him. And he talks about how it's really important to keep your voice low and calm. I think, I've worked on it, but you know, I'm kind of achieving it. So okay. And then later on, he says again, you know, and it's really important, we, you know, he's blah, 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 the parenting, parenting, and it's really important to be calm in your homes. Keep your voice low. blah, 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 more parenting, parenting, and then he's like, and, you know, he said, it's something that, you know, we really have to work on as Jewish women, you know, because we share this trait with other people of Mediterranean background, big yellers, there's a lot of yelling in Jewish homes, and we really have to work on keeping our voices down, and I'm like, I wasn't born Jewish, it's <laughs> <laughs> not my challenge, <laughs> I could totally burst my bubble, I'm like, yes, I'm calm, because I was raised by a calm mother, like, Yelling is not part of my background. Yes, I occasionally would raise my voice. And I have worked on keeping that down, but like, not my biggest challenge, you know? <laughs> so I realized, like, totally skip, like, patting yourself on your back so much for me that, you know, we definitely have different backgrounds and we bring that into where we are. So we bring our empowerment and we bring our hang ups, we bring our stuff forward. And as we inherit our parents' physical things, we inherit their emotional and spiritual things as well. We get their stuff, and we get their stuff. We get generational stuff. Okay, let's talk about generational stuff in the book of Esther for just a minute. Okay, so in the book of Esther, let me just take a sip. Share with you a soup. It's interesting. I made my breath already, but I guess it's enough time right now. Would you like to sit down? Yeah. Um, okay. Everybody knows the story basically of Esther. I'm not going to tell you that story. But let's just, just for this part. So we're up to the part where Esther's in the palace and Mordecai's trying to tell her, you got to go into the king. And she's like, no, no, he hasn't called me for like all this time. 
I'm feeling very nervous about it. So he needs to give her a pep talk, right? What should he say? If you'll be silent in this time, redemption and, and saving will come from, for the Jews, will come from another place. Okay, that's the first part of the Pesach. And you and your father's house will be lost. And who knows if for this you got to majesty. Okay, there's three parts of that Pesach. The first one is, it doesn't matter what you do, Esther, we're going to be saved no matter what. Right? You have nothing to say about the future of the Jewish people. They are going to live no matter what. Hashem promised, and there's a promise that will survive, and we will. But if you don't, you and your father's house will be lost. Now, how could that be? Esther's an orphan. What father's house stands to be lost? Right? It's one thing to say, okay, so if the Jewish people, if there's a battle and the battle goes poorly, it's not that the Jewish people won't be saved, but you might, in the king's palace, be overrun. You might die, right? So he might, maybe he's saying, you need to do this to save yourself. But he's not. He's saying the Jewish people will live. But if you don't do this, you and your father's house will perish. So what's he saying? The Jewish people's future is not in your hands, but you get to pick who you want to be. You get to pick the role that you're going to play. Do you want to be the one who channels our success? Do you want to be the Rebach Vahatzala person? Do you want to bring that to the Jewish people? Or do you want to stand in the background? Do you want to be the star? Do you want to be in the chorus? Do you want to be the supporting role? You get to pick your role. But, so what you do is not going to make a difference for the Jewish people, because the Jewish people have their path. But it's for sure going to make the difference for you and your father's house. What is that? She has the opportunity to fix what her previous dead ancestors messed up. She inherited their stuff. Who is she descended from? Who made a huge mistake? Shaul. Shaul. That's right. King Saul, King Shaul, he blew it with Amalek. Right? He captured the Amalekites. And he slaughtered them all like he was told, except for he let the king stay alive for one night, deference to the king, and he was going to kill him in the morning. Meanwhile, that night, he is, manages to procreate, and while he's dead, a maidservant is pregnant with his seed, and we've been battling that seed all this time, right? Okay. He blew it, right? And he actually, he let it slip through his fingers. He could have stopped this, and he didn't. So that flaw in him is passed down to be fixed by who? Who's going to fix it? And that's what Mordechai is telling her, because this is a pep talk. He's saying, you have the opportunity here. Pick who you want to be. You think you're not powerful enough? You could fix it. It could be through you that we're going to be taken care of, but you could be the one that it comes through. And if you choose that, if you choose to be the one that orchestrates the whole thing, you're going to fix forward and backwards your entire father's house. The flaw that was created that he did, you have the opportunity to fix it. It's a 
your hands. And who knows if that's not the reason that you came here? To fix what shawl broke. Right? You have that opportunity. Who do you want to be, Esther? How do you want to do this? That's what he's saying. You get to pick who you'll be and the role that you're going to take in this entire fabulous unfolding scroll of the history of the Jewish people. Who do you want to be? You get to pick. And it doesn't matter if you start out as an orphan girl or if you start out as a princess and you move into a field of Moab or if you move into the palace and you're nervous of the king or your husband. Whoever that is, you get to pick who you want to be, who you want to be, and how you want to impact. It's completely up to each of us. That's that mitzvah. This newness should be to you the first of all newnesses. You can remake yourself and remake yourself again and again and again. It is the power of the Jewish people. And that is one of the strings of consciousness that runs in America. We talk about it being a Judeo-Christian country. Not because there's Jews here, because in terms of population, it should be Judeo-Christian-Muslim-Atheo, right, country. <laughs> That's not what it is. It's Judeo-Christian because we have Judeo-Christian values, but the Judeo in the values, one really strong Judeo value in this country is you're not trapped. You could be who you want to be. It's the American dream, right? You're born poor, there is social mobility. It helps if you're white, but there is social <laughs> mobility. Even for people of color, for immigrants from all countries, we, we have this work ethic. Work, get educated, set your sights on something high. It might take a couple of generations. It might. I mean, you see that with Asian families. You see that with Korean families who come over and they pool all their resources so one person can go to college. When that person graduates law school, they, they earn money and they turn around and the nieces and nephews go to college. I mean, they, it may take a few generations, but they move up because that's what you can do here. Unlike in Europe, where the founders of this country came from, where if you were landed, you were landed. If you're a serf, you're a serf, and you can't get out of it. Right? America is the land of opportunity. That's what that is, the opportunity to be who you want to be. It's that Jewish value. You're not trapped by how you were born. You get to pick who you want to be, work hard, and you can achieve it. So that's really what we can accomplish as women, looking at Esther and looking at Ruth and seeing their backgrounds, where they came from, and the choices that they made. We get to choose who do we want to be and how will we get there. And a way to get there is to create space inside of us, to move our will aside and say, okay, Hashem, I'm here. I want to do what you want me to do. Tell me what that is. Let me learn what that is. It's not just going to fall into you necessarily. You do have to engage in the process, but that's why we have classes and books and tapes and internet and internet you have to be careful with. Not because of content, but because of what I call internet snacking. Right? You could take a little bit of information, and then you don't get hungry enough to talk to somebody about it. Talk to a real person. Ask a real question. Delve into a real text. Grapple with it on your own. That's something else that the internet allows you to do, is to not form an opinion. Just to look for other people's opinions. Who's blogging about this? What do other people think about that? Just take some time and think, what do I think about this? I'm part of this conversation. I need to get in touch with my own opinions and my own thoughts and feelings and my own wonderings and then talk to somebody about it and see 
why is this going on to me? And how do I feel about this? And how can I work with this? And do I need a tweak here? Or do I, does that need a tweak there? Like, how can how do I bring this into alignment? And how would I grow with this? And what should I put aside for later? And so I can work on something else. So um, maybe I'll stop here for questions. <laughs> Yes. Is there anything that can't be changed? Is there anything that can't be that changed? That a person has like, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm trying to think of an example, but like part of their personality, is it possible that? I think, I think the answer is yes and no, of course. That has to be two answers. So can you, is it possible to rid yourself completely of a particular strong trait? In general, we understand that not so easily, but that you get to pick how you channel it. Right, so the Rambam has the classic discussion of if somebody likes to cause bleeding. Right, you could be a murderer, you could be a shochei, you could be a surgeon. Right, so you can choose, you could be a mole. Right, so you can choose, do you want to cause harm? Do you want to, even if you want to, even if you don't want to build surgery, even if you just want to be like destructive, but destructive with the purpose, so that's shechita, right? So you can choose like where you want to be in that, but can you not, you know, desire somehow, and whatever that means, I don't mean necessarily desire to shed blood, but that you might have the, the tendency to be in that. Is that easy to get rid of? Not, maybe not so much because that might be something that you're born with. Um, but can you choose how you want to direct it? Yeah, you get to choose how you direct it. Can you lessen it? I think you can also lessen it. And we can all, some, some people are anger more easily, some people are walked on more easily. So you can change that. Can you completely get rid of it? I don't know. Can you work on it over years? And it turns out that you can work on things over decades. And over decades, you can really make a lot of headway. One of the things I just heard a few years ago, which I try to keep in mind, is we often overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in a decade. Right? So you may be saying, oh, I'm going to be fluent in Hebrew now, right? Okay, <laughs> this year, it's probably not going to happen. But 10 years from now, you could be reading Shai Agnon in Hebrew. You could be reading the Rambam and understanding it like, if you work on it starting now, right? It means putting in some effort. You have to decide. Set a 10-year goal. In 10 years, I would like to be able to learn straight from the sources and ask intelligent questions, right? Not ask, what does this word mean? Or what was Rashi's question? I want to understand Rashi's question and why he brought that madrash to back it up. Right? Yes, you could have that in 10 years. Anybody in this room could have that in 10 years. I don't care what background you're from. Anybody in this room could have that in 10 years. So, um, so you, but you have to set that goal if that's a goal that you have. So, yeah, there's a lot you could change. Even if you're dyslexic. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I learned about dyslexia, which is really cool. I learned from David and Goliath's uh, the book David and Goliath by um, Malcolm Gladwell. It's a whole chapter on dyslexia. Um, so he says that dyslexics see things differently. And because of that, they often see things differently. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, that is so cool. You know, it's frustrating to sometimes see things differently. You know, you mix up letters, I mix up typing, I type the wrong fingers, I love word processors now because when I typed, I couldn't. It didn't work because I would type the right finger on the wrong hand for that letter and then just to correct it with the correcting remember uh, you guys don't but with the either the whiteout or the correction tape it takes forever to it just didn't pay to type at all we're processing you can do it right because you just go fix it up and spelling 
not my friend, but my spelling goal is to spell well enough that spell check will pick it up <laughs> and give me a suggestion. Smartphones are great because you just press the button and say the word and it's right there. You don't even have to spell it right, right? You don't even have to, like, you just say it and it's there. I used to call the operator back in the day because my teachers would always say, look it up. I'm like, how do you look up psychology if you're starting with an S? And like, you can't look it up, really. People don't understand. People say, oh, you're dyslexic. You mix up your lefts and rights. Do this. <laughs> One, it's an L. It's your left. They're both L's, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, this is a long, I have two questions. So, this is along the same lines. What, what if you, you say, okay, um, if you want to be different, you can be different. But sometimes people grow up being conditioned by their parents mm -hmm. or surroundings to see a world a certain way. Mm -hmm. And they can't see past, right? Or you can't see it in any other yes. way. So, what would you suggest? I mean, in, in those cases, yeah. because everybody has that, right? So, how do we all get out of that? That's what friends are for. Literature, movies. I'm not saying all movies, but movies right. do help explore ideas. What would it be like if this? Mm -hmm. That's what a book is about too. What would it be like if that? Right? Whether it's science fiction or, or medical thing, like you start to read things and you're like, I didn't even know that was a career. I'm interested in that, right? I didn't even know that could be a problem. Now I'm scared of that, right? So whatever it is, but that's that's what stretches you. You know, and being in a city where you start to pay attention to other people and other conversations. It's actually also a I just heard a problem with the, with smart devices because we start to hear more and more and more of our own opinions reflected back to us because they read you. And they only offer you articles that you might be interested in. It's not articles that you might not be interested in, right? Take some time. Here's a piece of advice. If you want the super kosherist advice for how you learn more, read obituaries. <laughs> serious. Read obituaries and you see, how was this person born? What kind of education did they get? What did they accomplish? Who did they leave behind? If you see very interesting things in reading obituaries, you get like a short biography of a lot of different kind of people. Right? So it's, and depending on the person, you just open up whatever newspaper it is. But if you read obituaries, you just start to see, oh my gosh, there's all these different things in the world and all different ways of thinking about it. And it might make you curious about something. Read about it on Wikipedia or have a conversation better you know, about it. But that's important to stretch yourself, to realize that's a goal, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, now I am aware. I have been conditioned in a certain way. I want to learn about things that are outside of my frame of reference. How will I do that? Let me open up to that. Okay, one okay. other question. Mm -hmm. You started talking about instinct at first. Mm -hmm. How is instinct different from intuition? Oh, it, I guess in some cases it might be, you might not be sure which one is which, but they are totally different things. Mm -hmm. Instinct is where you, it really is the animal voice inside of you talking. Mm -hmm. and, um, and intuition is having an idea about something, mm -hmm. right? So it's not instinct to read somebody and think they look friendly, they look not friendly. Like, for instance, have you all seen that new book, Let's Play Safe, or whatever, it's a safety book, right? And it teaches kids all kinds of things about being safe, but part of the being safe is to be scared of strangers. But in the same book, it says, which strangers shouldn't you be scared of? You get lost in a store. What should you do? Find another mommy, 
right? So if you're teaching your child to use their intuition, mm-hmm. right? Use what you know about mothers and read another woman in the store that looks like a mommy. Pick her. She's probably trustworthy. But you're saying use, rely on your intuition here. Right? That's different than instinct, which might be, I'm lost, I need to freak out now. That's instinct. <laughs> right? So <laughs> it's saying, how will you transcend that? Use your intuition. Find a mommy that looks trustworthy in the store. So intuition is, is this person safe? Aren't they safe? Who can I ask on the bus? Is this the right stop or not? That person looks like they'll snap at me. That person looks like that. And then you're going to pick the older lady or whatever, or the somebody that looks, whatever you pick, that's intuition. That's different than instinct, right? It's interesting because the snake confused Hava with that, right? The snake said to Hava, don't you want to eat from that tree? And she said, yes, but Hashem said, don't. And he said, really, Hashem said, don't. He said, yes. He said, Hashem speaks to us in lots of different ways, doesn't he, Hava? speaks to us through instinct. All animals have instinct, and not the Shem talking to us. When Shem says it looks yummy, it's because it probably is. It's because it's probably healthy. Right? So which voice are you going to listen to? Hava, the inside voice of instinct, or the outside voice of how Shem spoke to you? Both are Shem talking to you, and he's able to really mix her up a lot. Right? So instinct is a voice that Shem speaks to us through. And we can transcend that, right? And listen to the, the way Hashem spoke to us straight out in the Torah and says, don't do that. You know, yes, that cheeseburger looks delicious and nutritious. No, <laughs> skip it. Even though it is delicious and nutritious, it's not for your soul. So we have to transcend that instinct and put it together. Cheesecake and wine. Wow. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. My parents are still out there. Are still there? Yeah. What's your family? Sorry, you were on the first day there. We got their dinner. Sweet. Yeah. What area do you live in? I'm in West I was involved with the Russian Orthodox Resident Center. Like a monocle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my son was a little bit. Where are you? West side. West side. Okay. Interesting. When I gave that short clothes to Denver. I do many times. I never really think of it this way. It's such a good thing. It's West, East, and South. It's a new thing. It's like serious. I mean, that was really good. I'll tell you what the show is. I'll play it now. Yeah, I'll play it now.